This morning's scripture reading is from Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire, and a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. We've been on a journey through Scripture in the last months, and uh, Pastor Tom took uh, Moses and God appearing to him in uh, the burning bush last week, and uh, God revealing his name, a new name, a personal, intimate name to Moses. And uh, today we come to the Exodus. Bob read for us the Scripture having to do with the Exodus. And uh, in this, in four events... God reveals his most personal name to the children of Israel and to Egypt, to the world, and uh, reveals his character and his, his inner heart. My wife and I have been uh, married for over 40 years, and early in our marriage, we kind of debated nicknames and called each other by nicknames. She made, uh, uh, her name is Ingelisa, and she made the claim that they don't have any nicknames in uh, Denmark. Well, I discovered that that's not true. But uh, my nicknames over the years uh, have been uh, Nolan. My, my name is Noel. I get called Noel, Nolan, Neil, Noah, or Leon. And if someone calls me Leon, I kind of look at them uh, politely and say, have you been checked for dyslexia? Now, Ingelisa's nicknames uh, have been, you can imagine with a name like Ingelisa what you can do with such a name. Ingemar, uh, Angel Lisa, <laughs> um, the European I looks just like a Z, and so we've received mail addressed to Zugalisa Sherry. So that's one of them. 
There's a number of other endearing nicknames that I call my wife that I will not repeat publicly because I want to have lunch after the sermon is over. I did teach in Eastern Europe in the mid-90s, and one of my students was named Alexander Halimanetz. He was 20 at the time. And he made the claim through our interpreter in Russian that he had seven names. And I kind of looked at him and I thought, this guy's pulling my leg or there's some sort of a problem in translation. So I said, well, could you write the names down and bring them in tomorrow and show them to me? So he did. Uh, his westernized name was Alex. He had an everyday name that people used for him, Sasha. He had an informal version of Sasha, which was Shura. And among his friends, he was called Shurik. His closer friends called him Sanya. And his very close friends called him Sanyak. And only his best friend called him by one intimate and personal seventh name, Sashka. And so he was telling me the truth. Interesting customs when we think about names around the world. We've been journeying through scripture and we've learned the significance of names. Abram having his name changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Isaac, what does Isaac mean in Hebrew, the original language? Anyone? Laughter, and that's significant. Jacob, whose name means trickster or deceiver, how'd you like to have a name like that? That's not even a nickname, that was his name. But it was changed by God as he journeyed through and walked with God to Israel, which means God strives. And so names reveal who a person is, what they stand for, how they act, what, what they are in their character. And what about the divine names, the names for God? We see the same thing as we go through Scripture. Genesis and Exodus really read like a family journal. Most of it is the family history of Abraham and Sarah. By the way, Sarah, what does Sarah mean in Hebrew, ladies? Princess. And so the divine names, in the beginning, God which in Hebrew is El, E-L, or Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the generic, the general name used throughout Scripture uh, for God. But through the family history, the family journal, Abraham and Sarah encountered God, experienced God, came to know him, and God revealed himself in more and more personal ways in doing that. For example, in chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah encountered God as El Roy. God sees. God sees me, my motives, my heart, what's really happening with my family. Chapter 17 of Genesis, El Shaddai, God of the mountain or God Almighty. We can depend upon God. He's like a 
He's as dependable as the mountains we see around us. El Olam in chapter 21. God everlasting. You can see the growing experience uh, reflected in the family journals of uh, an experience of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families. But it's really in the passage of Scripture that uh, Tom dealt with last week, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, that God reveals his intimate personal name, the same way that Alex revealed his most personal name to me. And uh, I'm going to read that for you, Uh, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. And wherever you see this in the NIV Bible, it's capitalized. It's the name for YHVH. Uh, It's been pronounced Yahweh, but the Jews take this name as being so holy. They won't even pronounce it. They just call it the name or G-D out of respect for it. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And earlier, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses wanted to know, well, who should I tell these rebellious people who spoke to me here in the burning bush? What is your name? The Lord says, my name is the Lord. I am who I am. Tell them I am spoke to you. And I am is a fascinating verb in Hebrew, which we'll talk about a little bit later. God reveals his most intimate and personal name through four action steps, four acts, if you will. The story of the ten plagues, a meal, or what's called the Passover, act two, Act three is the actual miracle of salvation, what Bob read just a little while, a little earlier, the exodus itself. And act four is the song of salvation, which the Hebrews or Jewish people sang in response to God's delivering them, saving them, redeeming them. You and I can know the most intimate personal name of the Lord. How can we know it? By hearing and responding, just as the Hebrew people did when he revealed himself to them in four mighty acts. Act one, the story of the ten plagues, which is summarized in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, where we read, But I, the Lord, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt... He will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know, they will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Why ten plagues? Has anyone ever thought of that? Ten is a biblical number of perfection or completeness. 
the complete teaching of the Lord for Pharaoh and for his people and for us is summed up in these 10 acts. We observe when we study them a kind of an intensification. They start a little bit easy and get a little bit sterner or harder as we go. Kind of like a parent talking to uh, his or her child. I told you to clean up your room and I'm going to count to three. One, two, how many times does the Lord count for Pharaoh? Ten, obviously ten. But wait a minute, doesn't the scripture teach us that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, wait a minute, slow down. Uh, We need to take a look at the character of Pharaoh and look at the human side of the coin here. And I've written a little script that uh, represents the background, the the religious scene in Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh, if he were to appear to us or to come onto the stage, would say something like this to us. I am Pharaoh, son of Re. God of light or sunshine, I rule over all the gods and goddesses of Egypt. I personally guarantee what we Egyptians call ma'at, the world's order, stability, peace, well-being. The Nile River is a tree of life to us. Hapi, the frog goddess, gives fertility to man and beast. Kafara, the sacred scarab, brings good fortune Hathor, the sacred cow, gives power and wealth to all who bow down and worship her. I am the embodiment of the god Ray, and Egypt is eternal. Our pyramids guarantee us passage into the next life. The word of Pharaoh stands firm, and no one will contradict my word. That's the mindset, the worldview behind Pharaoh. And and that's the context for the 10 plagues. If you were an Egyptian and you experienced plague number nine, uh, which is uh, covered in Exodus 10, verse 21, how would you interpret this? How would you take this? 10, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. God blotting out the sunshine. And the Pharaoh is the embodiment, the incarnation of the sun god, Ray. Well, clearly, Egyptians would know at that moment that Pharaoh is a wizard of Oz. He's, he's a phony. He doesn't have the power to bring the sunshine. The God of the Hebrews, he has the power over the sunshine in the darkness. And so we have a great spiritual conflict that's being worked out kind of behind the scenes. It would be as if we took the, uh, the curtain here and parted it and we could see what's happening behind the scenes spiritually. We find this three times in scripture. We find it here with the Egyptians and their gods and goddesses, polytheism. We find it with the Canaanites a little bit later in our journey. And we find it with the Persians still further on as we turn the corner toward the New Testament. Three major spiritual conflicts 
and that's what we have here. Plague number seven, the hail, illustrates some key things. Exodus 9, verse 14 and 16. This time, the Lord says to Moses, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And then the Lord says to Pharaoh through Moses, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who is the source of fertility, prosperity, order, health, well-being? Is it Pharaoh, the son of Re? No. It is the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the I Am. He is the source of all blessings and of life itself. I am. When you think about that phrase in terms of the New Testament, what comes to your mind? Anyone? How about the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John is written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and through believing have life in his name. John organizes his gospel around 14 divine signs to help people to believe through reading, but also six places where Jesus says, I am. Complete that for me. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, and so forth. Do you think a Jew listening to John, uh, who wrote the gospel, made an association or a connection between the I am of the Old Testament, the Lord, and Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why he was crucified by the Jewish leaders. They made that connection very well. If God brought 10 plagues on you and I and on the object of our affections as Americans, what would he use? This was a question in a devotional guide, which uh, I used a couple of years ago. Would he use the economy, the price of crude oil, the recession? He might use those. But these 10 plagues are a lesson to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, a public lesson, but also for Israel that they might know who the Lord really is, his intimate personal name, and that he's the source of their blessing. Remember, they've been slaves for, for many years, and uh, he needs to prepare them to live in freedom and in faith. And so these plagues are pictured by uh, Eugene Peterson uh, as a uh, kind of an exorcism uh, of Israel so that they might place their trust not in their Egyptian overlords or the bread that is fed them every day, but they might put uh, exchange and put their trust in the Lord, their I am. And so God is revealing his name in the plagues, Act 1, and then Act 2 is a meal, which we call the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27. Give us a, a summary of this. 
Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance, says Moses, for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony, the Passover. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The Hebrew has a play on words here. It is the Passover or Pesach to the Lord. Uh, If you have a Jewish friend, they will call uh, Passover Pesach. It is the Pesach to the Lord who passed over us. Pasach. So Pesach, Pasach. We read from plague uh, number four on, the plague of the flies, that the Lord uh, makes a distinction between the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews live, the Jews, and the land of Israel. And so with this last plague, the plague of the firstborn, the Passover, he also makes a distinction between the two. How many of you have attended a uh, Jewish Passover Seder? A few of us have. If you ever get invited, say yes. It's an incredible opportunity to um, affirm your faith. On the Seder plate are a number of food items which are symbolic. Uh, There's vegetable called carpus. Uh, which you dip into salt water and eat. The salt water represents the tears our ancestors shed during their years of enslavement. The shank bone of a uh, lamb. Uh, The Israelites marked the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a lamb as a signal that death should pass over their household, as it is written in Exodus chapter 12, Verse 12. And so we have a wonderful connection between the blood of the Lamb protecting the children of Israel and the blood of Christ covering us, bringing us forgiveness for our sins as we embrace that uh, faith in in Christ. And so we have a, a connection here between the two testaments that's very important. There's a hard boiled egg on the plate representing a symbol of mourning. Karoset is a mix of apples, nuts, wine, and spices, represents the mortar the Israelites were forced to use while they built structures for their Egyptian taskmasters. And then bitter herbs, maror, uh, or horseradish, they ate also as a reminder uh, that of the harshness of being slaves or servitude. Judaismabout.com has uh, information on that. Theology being worked out in the kitchen, around the table. Food items teaching the Jewish people about theology. The Christian home around your table. Do you talk about your faith with your children, with your peers, with uh, your, your spouse? Theology, in a biblical sense, gets worked out around the table in the warp and woof of daily life. And that's what we see here with the Passover. And it's powerful. It's wonderful. Our faith is worked out in the kitchen around a meal 
the Passover feast. Now the name of the Lord is public. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your calendar. The Passover is the beginning of a new calendar. And so what we have here is a new holiday for a new nation, uh, their New Year's Day, uh, which was promised to Abraham. How many years before this? If you're following along, look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. How many years before the Passover did God promise to Abraham to make of Israel a new nation, a great nation? 430. Abraham had prophesied that. We find that in Genesis 2. And so God is patient in fulfilling his promise. We as American Christians, um, sometimes we're not quite that patient. I'm reminded of the Chinese proverb that if you want to grow a squash, four months will do. If you want to see an oak tree established, you need 50 to 100 years. We kind of need that wisdom and perspective in our, our faith walk. Um, When we think about the Passover, is there a meal associated with the New Testament that is kind of a parallel to the Passover? Anyone? There's the man. The Lord's Supper, communion. Actually, scholars believe that it was in the passing of the fourth cup, what's called the cup of redemption, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples during that last week before he suffered his passion, uh, died and rose again. Yes, we have this meal in the Old Testament in which theology is communicated, and we have an important meal that we celebrate here at the journey also. And so to understand the Lord's Supper, we really have to understand the Passover. That's the setting or the context. And so we have Act 1, 10 plagues, Act 2, the meal, In Act 3, the miracle of salvation, which Bob read for us earlier. And we need to understand something if if we're going to appreciate what this was about. I'm a Protestant believer, but uh, one of the greatest works on truth and evil is uh, written by uh, Pope Paul II. It's called Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of Truth. You can go to the Vatican website and download it, and it's an incredible exposition of truth and evil. Some of the attributes of evil that he discusses there are slavery, how one nation enslaves another, how a nation will oppress the poor, mistreat and abuse women and children. These are some of the attributes of evil. And Egypt had blood on their hands. They were guilty. If Pharaoh was brought in front of the, the world court in The Hague, he would be declared a war criminal. 400 years of it. And so that's the justice issue that is behind the Passover and the Exodus. And we have to understand that. 
I think that's important. Um, in the passage that Tom read last week, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am deeply concerned about their suffering. That's what he said to Moses, God revealing his name, his character for this defenseless nation, his people, the Hebrews, his people Israel. And he acts to deliver them in a miracle called the Exodus. Now, many of you have young children or will have young children. And one of my favorite uh, storybooks is a series put out by Concordia, uh, the Purple Puzzle Piece series, in the middle of a wild chase. And this just gives us a really good feel for the Exodus. It's kind of like an action, you know, a hero uh, making things right, establishing justice. And uh, this is put in children's terms. So I'm just going to read a, a brief part of it to you. When Israel saw the dry path across the mighty sea, they all set off across the mud, and the chase was on again. We're off, we're off, we're leaving Egypt free. Let's go, let's go across this muddy sea. Come on, come on, while Pharaoh has the blues. Let's move, let's move. There's just no time to lose. Forget this mud and stop that silly crying. One, two, let's go. Hey, Pharaoh's really flying. Oh, Moses. Yes, Moses, you've led us all astray. You fool, you fool, you'll kill us all today. Just look back there. The Egyptians are in the muck. Well, well, now look, old Pharaoh's chariot stuck. Oh boy, oh boy, the wind has started to fall. It stopped, it stopped. Down comes that shaky wall. A splash, explosion. The Egyptian men are yelling. They're drowning, they're drowning. The swirling sea is swelling. Three cheers, three cheers. Our God was really great. We're free, we're free. Let's sing and celebrate. Younger children might have a little bit of problem with that, but for our older children, we, we love the, the action there, but it's really, it brings out the action of the Exodus. God, the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, the I am, protecting and freeing his enslaved nation and redressing 400 years of cruelty and evil. And so that's really the, the context and what is going on there in Scripture that might not be as clear to us as it ought to be. Can you think of a Christian step or act involving a move from death to life, similar to the Exodus? Baptism. Be brave. Shout it out. Baptism. Christian baptism really looks back to the Exodus for its context. And so you can see the connection between the Testaments here. It's like it's two sides of one coin. We really have to understand the Exodus to understand Christian baptism going from death to life through the blood of Christ or through the sacrifice, the love of Christ for us. There's a, a scripture that I would, in, in preparing the sermon, there was a scripture I was looking for. And I could not find it. 
Um, I will give a $5 bill to anyone who can give me this reference after the service is over today. But I will paraphrase it here. It goes something like this. Who ever heard of a God who took a nation out of the clutches of another nation, saved them, and made them into his people? Uh, you can find that. I'll give you $5. It's kind of like the old Chinese professor who said... After hearing the gospel preached about Jesus dying for our sins, forgiving us for the first time, he said, I knew there had to be a God like that. That's what God would do. And he became a believer because the, the ring of truth for him was there in the story about Jesus. And we see a very similar thing here in the Exodus story. This climactic act of salvation in the Exodus links the Old and New Testament together like two sides of a coin. And I want to just read to you Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 7, which we looked at, which we read earlier. But this shows the connection between the Testaments. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The climax of the Bible for a Jew is their redemption and freedom from Egyptian slavery. The climax of the Bible for a Christian is our redemption from a deeper form of slavery called sin sickness or soul sickness. The blood of a lamb over the doorpost protecting the Israelites, the blood of Christ over a prodigal son, a lost child, protecting us, showing us the truth and the way to live. The last part of our story uh, tells the response of the children of Israel to this great act of deliverance. And we read a summary of it in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. After this incredibly dramatic rescue event then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and rider are thrown into the sea the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation that's how they responded in faith and worship as a result of what God did for them. God's salvation is so unique, uh, Old Testament or New Testament, that it touches us deeply at a kind of a deep place as human beings. There's something in us that responds the way that Chinese professor did. And uh, I want to share with you a, a story that uh, took place about 10 years ago. It's a human story. I uh, found it on the front page of the Boston Globe and followed it for several months. But it touched me deeply, and uh, it's about a man who did something similar to uh, what we find in the Exodus and in the cross. Norbert Reinhardt, CEO of the Terramundo Mining Company based in Toronto, Canada, hired a project manager by telephone interview to head up a gold exploration trip to Columbia in October of 1999. Ed Leonard, 60 years old, soon headed off 
with the expedition team to South America. And one week into the jungle, Leonard was captured by Marxist guerrillas demanding a $1 million ransom for his release. Norbert immediately got in touch with the Canadian embassy and the Colombian authorities who communicated with the Revolutionary Armed Forces, seeking release of the man he had just hired. <clears throat> Negotiations reached deadlock, and the AP story got picked up worldwide, getting my attention on the front page of the Boston Globe. Several weeks into the crisis, an idea came to Norbert, which his wife and mother of their young child, Molly, tried to talk him out of, along with all of the government officials. But his mind was made up. On October 6th, at a remote mountain high pass in the Andes Mountains, surrounded by the AK-47s of suspicious rebels, he approached Edward for, the first, for his first face-to-face -face encounter and said, your shift is over, it's time to go home. <clears throat> that moves me just reading it. Norbert had offered himself as a replacement hostage, but with a new twist, a $2 million ransom. They figured if they get one million for the employee, they get two for the, the CEO. Now the story became the center of debate and prayer as people followed his fate worldwide, asking what would motivate a man to do something like this. After 94 days in captivity, Norbert was mysteriously released, and the January 13th headline in the Boston Globe shows Norbert, his wife Casey, and daughter Molly embracing outside Toronto customs. We're joyful beyond words, cried Casey. When questioned in the news conference that followed, Norbert said, I just did what needed to be done. It was nothing special. I just tried to fulfill my responsibility to someone working for me. When Ed Leonard was reached for comment, he is quoted as saying, he's the man who saved my life. And so we have something here in this human story which the Lord did in the Exodus. He reached down and did something for a defenseless people. He rescued them and saved them. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Pharaoh was out to bring the Hebrews back into slavery? No. He was out there to slay them, to kill a million people. We might have had to invent the word Holocaust earlier than we have. And, and that's what the Lord, the I am, did. He saved the nation from a Holocaust and rescued them and brought them to himself. So let's review four acts whereby the Lord reveals his true character, his personal name to his people Israel and to Egypt and to the world and through scripture to us. Uh, number one, the Lord took a wicked king to the woodshed in ten acts of loving correction. Two, when that failed, he showed his character by passing over the slave nation and taking the firstborn of the enslavers. Three, the Lord acted to save the defenseless Hebrews from the most powerful bully on earth up until that point. And number four, he personally led Israel into the desert to sacrifice and worship. 
After all, that was Moses' first request when he appeared before Pharaoh, wasn't it? He said, set my people free that we can go into the desert to worship the Lord. Simple request. And it took those 10 acts to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. God kept his word by revealing his powerful name, by humbling Pharaoh, and by fulfilling his promise made to Abraham 400 years before this. Next week, Paul will take us into the wilderness with Israel as they take their first baby steps toward nationhood. And so that's what we have to look forward to. I want to invite all of you just to close your eyes and and pray with me as we respond to this great story in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you for the teaching that you have given us in Scripture for the event of the Exodus whereby you have revealed your, your personal name, your most personal name to us. Thank you for making it possible for us to know that name, not just intellectually, but to know it through experience, to know it in our soul, to know it deep down, to know it with certainty. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that these two things are certain, that you saved Israel from, um, from certain death as a nation, and you have saved us from soul sickness and sin. We thank you for that. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.